trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. If you're struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. People don't understand how congested this neighborhood is and how on top of each other these homes are and how close this residence is in proximity to the other residences around it. And one of the cameras that is has been noted is this one that allegedly is 500 feet from Santa Cronodal's bedroom. And that camera footage was obtained. And my fear, not fear, but concern, is that it will hold valuable evidence, but I think it may, in fact, have picked up not only video, but audio from the house. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in- When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Trauma. Jody Weber, thank you so much for joining the program again. You are going to give us our weekly true crime update. What is caught in your web this week? Oh, thank you. Thanks for the plug. Um, (laughs) Well, let's just start out with what everybody's talking about, Carly Russell and the hoax abduction. You know, it is very, it's a relief that she's alive and that she was found safe and came back home. And I think across the board, everybody's happy about that. However, this young woman stole from her employer stole allegedly a a robe and some toilet paper prior to this hoax abduction. Um, There are some reports that she may also have stolen some money from this business that she worked for. Then she calls 911. And if you listen to the 911 call, it's, it's kind of chilling now that you know in hindsight that she was lying, how good she was at lying. And Clearly, um, coming up with this fake description of this non-existent infant or toddler who was on the side of the road and ultimately faking her abduction. And to my understanding, half a million dollars was spent in trying to locate her. You know, that's all over time for different law enforcement agencies that work collaboratively. You had um, helicopters up, you had airplanes up searching for her. There were thousands of dollars donated to like a GoFundMe to help Um, the people that donated. My understanding is they're not getting their money back. So I think where this stands now, there's three crucial things. Number one, that she receives the mental mental health help that she, I think, needs. I mean, this is not normal behavior. Um, whether it's a cry for help, whether it's a cry for attention, something's going on there. So I hope she gets the medical treatment that she needs. Number two, I think it's very possible she will be charged with crime. Um, she filed a false police report by calling 911 and claiming there was a toddler on the side of the road. There was no toddler. They were looking for a toddler. There was no toddler. Then she claimed she was abducted. Well, she wasn't abducted. There was no 18-wheeler that she was held hostage in. Nobody took her pictures without her permission. None of that happened. So I think she could be facing some criminal prosecution. And I think 
it is warranted for two reasons. Number one, this will deter other people from doing the same thing. Um, you know, this yeah. is very expensive. This this occupied law enforcement resources that may have been needed elsewhere and denied people who were truly in danger the life-saving or response that they needed. So I think that is something that needs to be considered here. But then third, I think what this will do, because there has been quite an outcry from advocates who have long said, look, minorities do not get the press coverage when they're abducted, when they are the victim of crimes. And there are many advocates in that community who are quite angry right now with Carly Russell, and they don't want their message lost in this storm. They want people to know just because this young woman who has some sort of issue going on and lied about this, they don't want that to hurt other cases that do need publicity and do deserve attention. And I think that's a very valid point and a very valid concern. Yeah, I would concur with that just because of the whole, it's, it, it, that's, I think, the thing that that upsets me the most is that it just is so detrimental to victims. Uh, and because we already know that people of color do not get this attention. That's correct. And, and they've been clamoring about this, you know, and, and, and rightfully so, saying Absolutely. we're not going to. And then to have somebody pull a hoax like this, very similar to Jussie Smollett years ago. It's um, And Sherry Papini and the Runaway Bride. Oh, yeah. Sherry yes. Papini, yeah. Yeah. It was a white so, woman, right? White woman, but, you know, same type of situation, um, you know, where they were all prosecuted, Jesse Smollett, um, the runaway bride. I mean, I was in Atlanta when the runaway bride was prosecuted, and I remember her doing her community service, mowing lawns and picking up um, trash along the highway. Um, there are consequences for this type of behavior. And I think what people don't think about is, what if someone would have gotten hurt while looking for her? Yeah. You know, law enforcement, you know, going up in a helicopter, that's not a guarantee. What if they search water bodies? What if somebody is out searching for her and stumbles, you know, on rough terrain and injures themselves? All those things. Those law enforcement officers not only took time away from other citizens who may have needed their help while on the job, but then many of them most likely worked overtime on this, searching for her, that took time away from their families. That's not fair to them. Yeah, and it's also, the, the thing that I think of too is just, uh, the, and I don't know a lot about this, other than what I saw just people posting about this woman and, and she's missing and there's an infant and I'm mm -hmm. like, this is a toddler and I'm like, what is going on? Like this poor woman. And and then I saw this like mini press conference and she's hired a lawyer. So now she has to, now she has to pay for a lawyer to go out there and speak for her and this whole mess, and then the boyfriend is saying, please leave her alone. Don't pick on her on social media. And I'm like, hey, buddy, like, look, we are <laughs> we are all getting hammered on social media by people. <laughs> like, sorry, it just comes with the territory. But um, you know, and I do, I do fear for her mental health because I think there's this a cry for something that was much greater than what it appears to be. Well, you know, the runaway bride, she had some shoplifting in her past. And in my experience, shoplifting is never about the stuff you take. It's really more of a cry for help. And so I wonder if, is the, if this is Carly's cry for help, I hope she gets the help she needs and wants. Absolutely. 
But, you know, actions have consequences. You know, you tell that to your, when you're a parent, you tell that to your kids. And this action, I think, will have some very serious consequences for her. I think she will be prosecuted. And at the very least, I think she will have to repay the expense that this investigation cost. And I'm hearing it's half a million dollars. That's a very expensive lesson. That's what's going on with Carly Russell. But now there's there's bigger fish to fry in the true crime world. And we had some serious updates with Brian Koberger, right? Yes. Um, the deadline for him to proffer an alibi came on Monday. And at the very last minute, Ann Taylor, his defense counsel, did file notice with the court that he has an alibi, but they're not going to tell the court what it is. And so everybody's up in arms. Like, what are you talking about here, Ann? And so let me break down what she wrote for the court. Essentially, she said, Brian has the right to remain silent and he is going to execute that right. He also has the right to testify on his own behalf at trial, and he doesn't have to make that decision at this time. Now, what she did say is that they are still investigating, and so she wants the court to recognize that they may provide an alibi at a later time, they're just not prepared to do it now. Well, that's not the way it works. You can't say you have an alibi, but we're not prepared to give it to you now. That violates the Idaho law on providing an alibi. And the prosecution already afforded them extra time to provide an alibi. So what I see written in the tea leaves here is what she says in her filing is that they believe his alibi will come out through cross-examination of prosecution witnesses, as well as through expert testimony. I read those statements as what they plan to do is cross-examine the government's witnesses and state that the cell phone evidence that will be testified to, they will say, well, you can say he's in the proximity, but can you actually say he's in the house? I think that's where they'll say, well, he has an alibi. He may not be in that house. He may be a block away. He could be on the street corner. Um, I think with the with the knife sheath, I think they will have their experts come up with their own reports. And I think those experts will say, yes, that is his DNA on that snap on the knife sheath. But he could have touched that knife sheath at a store or at a trade show. Just because that knife sheath was dropped in the residence doesn't mean Brian Koberger was in the residence. Someone else could have bought that knife sheath at a store after he had touched it and they dropped it. So I think it's those kinds of games we're going to see. And I don't think it will be effective, but that is what was filed. And it is raising a lot of eyebrows in the legal community because, like I said, they're saying, yes, he has an alibi, but we're not going to tell you what it is. It's certainly not Brian Koberger was at such and such other address with this person at this time, and we're here to show you video recordings of his car and a ring doorbell footage of him with this other person or this other person's available for testimony. It's nothing like that. And if they had that, they would produce it. So I think ultimately Ann Taylor is doing her job in defending her client. However, it's very craftily written filing. And I don't think a jury is going to fall for this 
eventually. But is that where we're at with this case, essentially, is that it's going to just come down to gamesmanship, like legal maneuvers and legal posturing versus like evidence and facts, at least for the defense? Well, the defense will try to do what defenses always try to do, and that is get the most significant evidence tossed pre-trial so that it can't come in. Anything that was beyond the scope of a search warrant or not articulated in the search warrant, anything that wasn't properly collected, anything that wasn't properly tested, that is normal defense lawyering. And that is good lawyering. You don't want something that was obtained as fruit of the poisonous tree coming in to a trial. That's not fair in our justice system to do that. Otherwise, you could have law enforcement running amok and obtaining things that they don't have legal access to have or a right to have. So I don't have a problem with them filing pretrial motions, but it is, I know I hear it from my subscribers, it is exhausting. It's like, well, you keep asking for more and more and more and the prosecution comes back and says, we've either already given it to you or it's not ready yet. We've advised you of that. So I think there will be gamesmanship as far as these pretrial motions, trying to get things tossed. And the good news is, is that there are other cases that can be cited for whether or not the challenge is warranted and both sides will get to argue their points in front of the judge. So that's good for the overall fairness of the trial, because ultimately you don't want Brian Koberger, especially in a death penalty case, you don't want him convicted and then have it overturned because he had inadequate representation by counsel. So Ann Taylor is doing her job and you want that for a client like hers. Now, is this is I think back to like the O.J. Simpson case, right? And you're talking about the fruit of the poisonous tree. Mm-hmm. Was this sort of what they were doing with what was his name? Mark, the racist Mark Furman, defense? Mark Furman. So what they did is they accused the police, the Los Angeles Police Department of planting evidence in the O.J. Simpson case. The problem that never got through to the jury is. Well, the police would have had to have known when they planted the bloody glove behind the mansion that Mark Furman found, they would have had to know O.J. Simpson was bleeding. They didn't know that at the time the glove was found. So none of it makes sense Uh in hindsight. Uh But certainly that there have been some statements in some court filings where the defense has said, well, you know, why should we believe that Brian Koberger put that knife sheet there when there was over a hundred some law enforcement officers also in that house? That somewhat insinuated that this sheath was planted. And so people are jumping on that. However, I think when it comes down and there's a jury in that jury box and those jurors are shown the crime scene photos and how savage these killings were, I think that will temper a lot of shenanigans and salaciousness. I don't envision that's going to go over well with this jury when they know there's a knife sheath found at a stabbing, a quadruple stabbing, when they know, hey, there is phone tracking of the perpetrator's phone leaving his residence driving to the proximity of the area, then being put into airplane mode, then being turned on after the time frame of the killings, then going on a circuitous route for an hour and 10 minutes, and it all sinks with an Elantra. 
I think they're going to have a hard time buying that he just happened to be in the area but was not responsible. There's reasonable doubt and any doubt, and there is a difference. Uh, the example I always give is if you're in a windowless room and you hear thunder and you hear what sounds like water falling on the roof, and then you eventually step outside and you see the ground is wet and you see there are puddles and you see a rainbow, a reasonable person would conclude it rained. Now, could there have been someone up on the roof with the sound machine making thunder noises and spraying with a hose? Yes, but is that reasonable? No. And the same thing applies here. Is it reasonable to think Brian Koberger got up in the middle of the night, drove his Elantra to the proximity of the crime scene with his phone and just happened to stand on a nearby corner and turn off his phone and put it in airplane mode and just stand there during the time of the homicides and just randomly someone else happened to buy that knife sheath that had his DNA on it. And then, oh, he just happened to drive an hour and 10 minutes out of his way when he could have taken a straight shot back to his apartment. That's a 10 minute drive. I don't think a jury's going to buy that because it's not reasonable. Yeah. And, and again, I'm thinking as you're telling me this, like just the way that the cell phones track is just it's nutty to me. Well, and I would not want to be the person going up against the cast team, the FBI's cellular analysis survey team, the ones that not only do all this analysis, but they not only look at the strengths, the triangulation of the cell phone signals to the three closest towers, but they're also looking at the apps on that phone. What um, specific geolocation data can be obtained from the apps on that phone? And we know he had that Strava exercise app on his phone. We know that yeah. um, Google often marks your geolocation. There are many apps that say that, will you allow me to track? It's very possible that he has many apps on his phone that could have recorded his geolocation data. There was also an interview given quite a while ago by the father of Kaylee Gonzalez. And in this television interview, I'll never forget it, he said that the perpetrator, Brian Koberger, had his wife, he connected to their Wi-Fi and that had not been released before. And so what? I didn't, I didn't know what? if he slipped up saying that because now that interview, I can't find it anywhere. But he said in that interview that he had connected, like he had the cell phone and then switched it into airplane mode. But before he switched it into airplane mode, it connected to the Wi-Fi. Well, if that's true, let's just say that is true. I think the cast team from the FBI will be able to testify how close you have to be in order to connect to that Wi-Fi. Wow. Think about it. I mean, if you come into somebody's house with your cell phone, you can connect to their Wi-Fi or you come within close proximity to a Wi-Fi. So I kind of give credence to what he said in that interview. And like I said, I can't find that interview anymore, which almost makes it more significant to me. So, yeah, because you have to li literally be within steps of the Wi-Fi. It's not like you can connect even across the street, even. I mean, I've got pretty good Wi-Fi and it's, yeah. I can't well, get a reception outside my house with the Wi-Fi. 
Well, and, and that's a good point. When I sit out on my back deck, it's, you know, it's kind of shaky. Um, and, you know, we also need to remember, we only know pretty much what was in the probable cause affidavit. Mm -hmm. There have been dozens of search warrants that have gone out. I think it will be interesting to see, do they have purchase records for that sheath? Do they have purchase records for a K-Bar knife? What else do they have on Bryant Koberger? I think there could be a lot that shows. Um, we know from the probable cause affidavit that he was also in that area up to 12 times prior to the night of the homicides. Well, my question is, did he connect on the Wi-Fi previously? Was he that close? I think it will be interesting to find out all the things we don't know. We know that there was clothing and receipts that were um, searched for in his residence that they couldn't find. They were looking for Dickie's clothing. They found receipts of Dickie's clothing. Well, do they have that? If not, why did you buy new clothing and where is it? And why did you dispose of it? Were you wearing it the night you were committing homicides? I think those are things that will be raised at trial. It's just, it's, you know, I know a lot of people are very paranoid about, you know, everybody watching everything you do. <laughs> but literally, they, you can track everything now. Well, and one of the things that this law enforcement team, this collaborative team out in Moscow did that I just thought was brilliant is they got search warrants for one of the delivery companies. I want to say UPS. And they're equipped, those trucks are equipped with cameras. Well, they want to know what camera were you on these streets at certain times? Because, and I think they must have been able to see a UPS truck on either a ring doorbell cam or another security cam. And it was at a crucial time. So therefore, in my law enforcement experience, that tells me they saw a truck, that truck's there at a crucial time that they're interested in. So now they also got a search warrant for UPS footage to see if that truck picked up something that they are also interested in. So I think that was really, really smart law enforcement and really good investigation. And I'm curious if that will come in at trial. Yeah. Woo. It's just, it's just, I don't know why I'm so astonished because I know everything is like available. I'm a tech guy, but like it's, you know, it's things you don't think about. Yeah, the UPS trucks, everybody well, cameras. Well, they do. And people have ring cameras and people are out and about with cell phones, a camera in their hands now. It's not like back in the day when I worked the Olympic Park bombing in Atlanta and everybody had digital or had Kodak film. It wasn't digital then and you know handheld camcorders now everybody's got a video camcorder and um a, a camera in their hand with their phones so um you know there's so much more potential for to be recorded and one of the things that i find so significant or interesting because i do have some subscribers to my podcast that are from moscow and they have told me jody People don't understand how congested this neighborhood is and how on top of each other these homes are and how close this residence is in proximity to the other residences around uh, it. Uh, and one of the cameras that is has been noted is this one that allegedly is 500 feet from Zana Kernodal's bedroom. And that camera footage was obtained and my fear, not fear, but concern, 
is that it will hold valuable evidence, but I think it may in fact have picked up not only video, but audio from the house. And I worry about what you can hear on that recording, but I think it could be crucial as far as pinpointing not only the time of certain homicides, but potentially the order of who was killed first. I think a lot, that could be a very crucial video recording. Do you ever, I mean, this is probably a really dumb question, but do you ever sit back and look at these cases as you just mentioned the Olympic Park bombing and, and, and Kodak film? Do you ever look back at these cases now and think back to if we had the resources and the technology 25 years ago, would we be doing things differently? And what is, and does it, is it astonishing to you just on how law, the law for law enforcement hasn't, has evolved? Absolutely. I mean, the easiest comparison for me to make is comparing the Olympic Park bombing case to the Boston Marathon bombing case, because essentially there were a lot of similarities. You have bombers bringing a device into a massive, crowded sports event and leaving it there to detonate. And in just, what was it? Like, I think it was about 16, 17 years apart. I mean, we were collecting Kodak film from all over the world, you know, printed out photographs. And the agents that worked the Boston Marathon bombing, they were collecting, you know, they their systems kept getting overwhelmed because people were emailing in their video and their, their photographs. And from- what was that again? That was, I want to say 2013. Yeah. Because like, I think 10 we years just had the 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So even now there's more. And I remember we went to NASA to enhance a lot of our crucial photographs that we received. And at the time, NASA was the preeminent place to go for video enhancement. And it makes sense because when you think about all the unmanned spacecraft that they send up into space... They have they're they're reliant on their machinery to collect their images, so they need to have the best state of the art capabilities to enhance the images that they get back. So it's just you know it's amazing how much technology has really helped law enforcement. It is a lot to deal with, especially when you're talking about everybody having cell phones and all the cameras that are now available in doorbells and security cameras, and people are much more comfortable with technology. So therefore, it's more prolific, but it certainly does help law enforcement. Yeah, it's you're talking about you went got satellite images from NASA. It's like now there's like Google Earth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's so wild. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be that kind of technology. You know, it, it, obviously, the government's technology is way better than that. But, um, you know, they always what? say what is, is government technology is that like surveillance technology is like 20 years ahead of what we have available to civilian use. Well, like, they my experience with them is they were the, the the front runners in enhancing like, you know, we have all these these enhancement apps now that make you look a lot better than you normally do. Well, they were the ones that could enhance and, and you know, really um, when you would have like pixelization and problems like yeah. that, they were the ones that could really get through all those complications and really clear up the image and really help you see what there was to see. So, um, you know, it's just really interesting how now, you know, you look at what 
your smartphones can do. I mean, some of the photographs I've taken with my smartphone, I mean, they're just incredible clarity. Yeah, it enhances them automatically. Just Mm -hmm. adds little highlights and little edges and you're like, oh. I need all the help I can get. I need all the help I can get. Yeah. You're fine. You're fine. I would like a better picture of you to use for thumbnails, though. Oh, I just know. Saying. Here we go again. Here we just go. Saying. The headshots. Yes, Gallery. Headshots. Okay. Okay. The headshots. Um, so uh, we have some more true crime things to discuss, but let's discuss something way more important than all of this. The Barbie movie came out. Yes, it did. And I just saw it. Tell us about it. What were your feelings? Well, I'm a writer. I'm a writer. So I thought the writing, there was some really clever writing in it. And I think there are some political overtones to it. But I think if you can set aside your political affiliations, whatever they may be, and just look at it from um, the way that Barbies were utilized to tell young girls, hey, you can be this, you can be that, you can be this, you can be that. And maybe you can, but are you really supported doing that? I think that was the underlying message is that we tell girls that they can be anything they want to be, but we have not set up the business world to support young women and and young girls. Um, We say that you can do it, but I mean, we don't have um, national maternity leave girls you know um the glass ceiling is still in place in a lot of industries and i think that movie i saw it with my teenage daughter and i thought it was a really good film to take her to um to see kind of certainly what my generation was exposed to versus what they're now exposed to now and um i think it really 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 addressed stereotypes in a very effective way what did you think? I thought it was brilliant, and I just say I, I I love Ryan Gosling. I mean, I'm not like in the in a in a um lo- in a romantic way. Yes, <laughs> but but I just think he's hilarious. I just he was like the perfect Ken. I just my favorite line in the movie was like I just I just wanted to ride. I thought it was about the horses. I just wanted to ride the horses. I was like, <laughs> he was very I funny. Loved it. I loved it, but I do think it is. Yeah, if you take away your political leanings, and I didn't, I don't know a lot about Barbie. I didn't play with Barbies, obviously. I did have My Little Pony though, but I did not play with Barbies. Um, I, uh, I didn't realize that Barbie until I watched this movie. Like they had like the professional Barbie, and they had all these different mm-hmm. models of Barbie to support young women. Because I kind of thought that Barbie was slightly exploitative and giving young women a, a a bad sense of self-esteem or be like, if you don't look like this, it was, it was, it was stereotyped in that way. So I sort of had always thought that that, that the trope was that like, Oh, if you don't look like Barbie, you're not going to achieve X, Y, and Z. And then I really came to realize by watching the movie that, Oh, there, it, it was a, a sort of thing used to empower young girls and to be like, you can achieve anything. But then of course, reality sets it is that society isn't set up for that yet. And we haven't really moved into that. And some would say we've regressed in a lot of ways. Well, they did have stereotypical Barbie. That is how it started. And that's why. Oh, for sure. Yeah, 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 exactly. Certainly, certainly. I mean, Margot Robbie was the perfect casting as Barbie. I mean, she is just stunning. So but it is interesting how, you know, it was always portrayed as Barbie and Ken, Barbie and Ken. And Barbie is nothing without Ken and Ken is nothing without Barbie. And I think that 
was a message that came through yeah. in the film yep. as well, yep. um, is that, you know, I think you can stand on your own two feet and you don't have to be part of a couple in order to have an identity. I thought that was an interesting trope as well. Yeah. And by the way, it's shot phenomenally, the set decoration and the, the, uh, the, the costume design, the production design is off the charts. It's fantastic. Like just to go see it from a filmmaker standpoint, and of course the writing is very smart. The direction is very mm -hmm. smart. Just the whole way it was put together. It's just a fantastic film. And I never thought I would say that I went to see the Barbie movie and I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I, I liked it myself. I, I did enjoy it myself. And like I said, I saw it with a 16-year-old teenage girl who I think is um, a very important audience for that film. Absolutely, absolutely. So now back to the depressing world of true crime <laughs> No, but uh, in all seriousness. So, okay, so we've, we've uh, talked a little bit about Carly Russell. We talked about what's going on in the Idaho case with Brian Koberger. And is there there's something else that's going on too, right? Well, Gilgo Beach and certainly the arrest of Rex Hayerman in Long Island in connection with three of the murders of the victims found on Gilgo Beach. He is suspected in a fourth murder, but law enforcement was at his residence executing search warrants for, I believe, let's see, it would have been, I want to say 13 days. I think it was it was quite extensive. Um, they just finished, and not only did they search his entire house down to the studs, they dug up his backyard. They searched two storage facilities. They have executed a search warrant down in South Carolina for his former vehicle. They have notified law enforcement in South Carolina, Las Vegas, um, New Jersey, to look at their cases, um, see if you have people who have gone missing, if you have unsolved murders. According to a press conference they held yesterday, they hauled out 279 weapons. Many of them were long guns. They found 92 permits for handguns. He had built a vault in his house where some of these weapons were stored. Additionally, they said they seized a massive amount of material, but they didn't go into specifics as to what that material is. Now, we were able to observe several things that were taken by the crime scene processors from the home. We saw a portrait showing a, a woman with bruises to her eyes. We saw dog cages removed. We saw a, a life-size doll removed in a glass box. Um, we saw Many some people very argued, have argued that it's not a life-size doll, by the way, because we talked about it in our last week's True Crime Update. But they said, no, it's not a life-size doll, but it is a life-size doll. It is right? a life-size doll. Yes, it is. Okay. It is It is clearly not, um, you know, when it when it's big enough. I mean, I've had children. I know what a toddler size is. It's toddler <laughs> size. So wow. to me, yes, it is life-size doll. Um, and you can't just take a life-size doll because it's creepy, as we talked about. There has to be some correlation as to why they took that doll. That's really more important than whether what it was life-size or not. Um, it either belonged to a victim or there's something on that doll that is evidence belonging to a victim. And that's why they took that doll. So I think, um, you know, I saw in the comments, people were like, well, they weren't, that doll wasn't dressed in something from the victims. Well, how do you know? They took that doll for a reason. There's something connecting it to a victim. <laughs> 
Um, Everyone's so, an expert, aren't they? Everyone's well, there and they're an expert. Right, right. <laughs> so I think, you know, if they took it, there's a reason why they took that. Um, additionally, I think based on my experience, they will have torn up the carpeting, torn up the padding underneath the carpeting, torn up the floorboards, taken drywall down, looking looking for um, any sort of hidden compartments behind bookcases, hidden compartments in furniture. We know he was a furniture maker, all those kinds of things. I think we saw them lift off the deck off the back of the house. They used sonar in the backyard and they did bring in excavation equipment to dig parts of the backyard. There were some things, some items laid out on um, out on some sort of mat and were being photographed. To me, it looked like cloth, perhaps burlap cloth that had been found. So I'm wondering if it perhaps at one time matched the burlap that was used to wrap the victims, or if perhaps at one time there had been a victim in, or part of a victim in that burlap and has since decomposed. But I think all of that will obviously be tested and analyzed, and it will be quite interesting to see if in fact the search warrant returns are published or if they're kept under seal. Yeah, I was going to say, when will we know what they found? When will that be released to the public? Is there a requirement even to release this stuff to the public? Because obviously, there's probably conjecture just all over the place, you know, as we see. So how does something like that work? Well, he has been indicted by a grand jury. So that eliminates the need for a preliminary hearing. Um, I think, quite frankly, it will be whether or not they'll have, typically you have 10 days to issue a search warrant return. So if the searching ended yesterday, technically they have usually 10 days to get that return back to the court. And if the DA wants to keep a lid on things, he may ask for that return to be sealed. The court may agree, they may not. Or the DA, who quite frankly has been very prominent on local newscasts and appearing on different um, shows and programs, um, really? may not want it sealed. We'll just really? have to see. Um, I think, I think a lot will be interesting to see. I know I listen to a lot of former homicide detectives, and they're not happy with this DA with how much he disclosed at his initial press conference. Um, you know, everybody's got an opinion. So I think to preserve the case, I think the less you say as the lead prosecutor, the better. But that's just my opinion. And like I said, everyone has an opinion and they may not agree with me. Um, but certainly he has been giving a lot of interviews. And I would hope now that um, he would maybe keep his head down and just focus and work with the team and see what evidence there is and start working on getting ready for trial. We will be optimistic in that. <laughs> but as Andy Wall famously said, <laughs> 15 minutes of fame, you know, um, well, in this case, probably 30 minutes. Uh, well, that's interesting. So did they return anything about the hammer? Was there any discussion of the hammer? I have not heard any discussion of the hammer, only that 279 weapons were taken. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they were all guns. A hammer can be a weapon, so can a knife. So it'd be very interesting to see what else they seized from that home. Certainly the dog cages. I worry because of all the torture videos that was found on his computer. I worry that perhaps some of the victims were held in cages and tortured prior to death. I think that is something that law enforcement will be looking at. And it's very disturbing, but I think that's a possibility. What does it look like when you're these mountains of evidence are stacked against these people, these potential, you know, these suspects, obviously uh, innocent until proven guilty. But at some point, do they just try to cut a deal? Do they just go, okay, you got me. Let's just. Some do, but some don't. Some don't. Some really, it depends. I've had cases, long cases with mountains of evidence where a public defender is appointed by the court. And that public defender is like, oh, this is fantastic. I don't have to drum up business for the next three years. I can drag this out and get paid by the government and, you know, file all sorts of pretrial motions and file all sorts of overtime. And I can make a lot of money working this big case and I'm going to fight all this evidence. And so I've had to go to Frank's hearings where, you know, they challenged, did I Mirandize a perpetrator? upon arrest properly and did I overreach in search warrants and, you know, all those kinds of things. So it can get quite, um, quite extensive. But then there are others that, you know, frankly, they talk to their counsel and their counsel says, look, you could be facing, well, they don't have the death penalty in New York is my understanding. So, but in states where you have the death penalty, There are attorneys that say, look, I may be able to spare you the death penalty if you're willing to plead to this. And if that's a value to you, then that's let me see if I can work that deal. And in some cases, to some defense attorneys, that is a victory. Also, at the very least, if he is innocent, at least he's gotten a head start on his home remodel, courtesy of the police department. (laughs) Well, according to the the neighbors in the area quite dilapidated um and you know you and i have had that talk about a looky-loo situation you know how can his family ever go back to that residence and live there and not you know have people driving by and staring and egging that house and you know i think i wouldn't be surprised if that property is eventually demolished because I do think it will garner just an incredible amount of tourist interest. Now, my understanding is the police have set up cameras across from it and that they are citing people. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was just going to say like a $150 ticket because obviously people have been, I just saw somebody doing it alive on YouTube yesterday with it. And, and now they're starting to cite citation people for like $150 because the neighbors are complaining. I mean, I would. It's a, well, they're, they're in the Hamptons, right? I mean, or, or Amagansett or, or like, it's all the same thing to me. I've been there. It's all the same thing. <laughs> it's, it's Massapequa, nice Massapequa Park is where it's located. And, Got it. you know, and quite frankly, you know, I, there are chemicals. Like I would assume they did presumptive blood testing in that house with some very, um, you know, Caustic chemicals. Yeah, the caustic chemicals is right. And so I don't know if it would be safe for the wife and children to go back there, even if they wanted to. 
Um, you know, certainly if they had to remove floorboards, if there's no carpeting, if they removed walls, if, you know, they had to remove pipes, all that kind of, you know, going through the heating vents and the air conditioning, vacuuming those out for any sort of fibers, hairs. I think all of that is possible. So I don't know, number one, if they would want to go back, given the fact that it has been reported that law enforcement believes he committed murders in that house. Number one, would they want to go back? But number two, is it safe to go back? I think that's an equally important question to ask. Yeah, you think about things like black mold that gets stirred up and, and dust and just all kinds asbestos, of... Asbestos, right. Asbest yeah, asbestos, absolutely. I mean, especially if the right. home was that old. Yeah, it's a lot. Well, um, you know, uh, of course, my, you know, my heart goes out to the family because they're just... In a, they're in a position that they don't want to be in. And, well, you know, very difficult position. Very yeah. difficult position because, I mean, they were married for 25 years. You know, that's no, that's a long time. And you, she, from everything we've heard, she was stunned. She was completely shocked. She has filed for divorce, but you go back and question anything and everything. Every, you know, how, I mean, all the things that you trusted are now lies. Did you really ever know that person? And I've had cases with subjects who were Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type personalities. And, you know, their spouses didn't know, their siblings didn't know, their coworkers didn't know, their best friends didn't know. And they feel betrayed. They feel, they get real, they, they really go through the stages of grief where at first they're just in denial and then they're sad and then they get angry, really angry. And so it is a grief process for these family members. And, you know, I understand the stepson has um, some special needs and the daughter worked with her father at the architecture firm. You know, this is a lot for the children. And I just hope people are sensitive to them and um, recognize that they're independent and individual people and don't deserve to be um, maligned because of what Rex Heyerman is accused of doing. And, you know, just like Brian Koberger's family getting, you know, a lot of mistreatment, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Like they're 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 innocent, just like the victims. And then and again, you talk about the betrayal and the rug pull from that. Isn't you know, that is just, it's the betrayal of the worst kind. Can you imagine? Uh, just my heart goes out to them. Um, Jody Weber, we have the true crime update from you. Uh, thank you so much for joining the program. Jody's podcast is called Caught in My Web, available on Patreon. Actually, it's the yes. hit, hit true crime podcast. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Pally. Thank yes. you. Yes. We want to make sure you do that. Uh, Jody Weber, thank you so much for joining the program. Fantastic. Thanks for having me back. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. For exclusive content around this podcast, please consider supporting me via Patreon by going to collierlandry.com forward slash support. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and please leave us a five-star review. If you want to see video episodes of this podcast, please check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash collierlandry. You can find links to additional resources in the show notes of today's episode. 
This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Copyright Collier Landry.